You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Natalitsky, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Kevin Richardson. Kevin has been principal at Emmanuel College in Adelaide since 2002. Prior to this, he helped establish the internationally acclaimed Technology School of the Future and held senior executive positions in education departments in Western Australia, New South Wales, and South Australia. Recognition of Kevin's outstanding leadership has seen him receive the Australian Centenary Medal in 2001 for a significant contribution to education, a Presidential Citation for National Leadership in Education from ASIL, and the Mary MacKillop Medal for Eminent Educator of the Year from the Australian College of Education. He's been awarded the John Lang Award for Exceptional Educational Leadership from the Australian Principals Association. Kevin is someone I'm getting to know now that I'm living in South Australia, and we recently spoke together at an Aspirant Principal Seminar. He is an incredibly generous educator and a mentor to many colleagues. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's start the conversation. I thought we'd start in a broad kind of a sense because your career has spanned a range of roles in a range of educational settings. And I wonder what are the principles or the values that anchor you or that have anchored you over that time in the work that you do? I think um, I've always been an, and probably unusual for a principal. You know, I've, I've worked on the 2000 Olympic strategy. I uh, I've worked for Lego and Microsoft and Apple in the US. So I had a a real variety of roles and bringing all of those. But for me, it really comes back to one thing. Um, The heart of education is the education of the heart. Too often we get carried away by curriculum terms and new fads and we actually forget what the real basis of what we're on about in schools. So for me, that's the key. It's about people, it's about relationships and bringing a sense of belonging to that. The heart of education is the education of the heart, so really keeping humanity, people and relationships at the centre. I guess I'm thinking about the the idea of the principalship and how that shapes up. I'm in my first kind of six months of principalship and you're in your 20-something year. Uh, what does that look like for you in terms of the, the scope of that work? You know, there's the business aspect, there's the teaching and learning aspect, there's the relational aspect, there's the, you know, student uh, sort of behaviour and complex wellbeing issues aspect, there's parents, old scholars, multiple stakeholder groups. So how does that sort of philosophy of yours of the heart and people, how does that help you to make decisions about what your day or your week or your year or the work might look like? The Ghana people have a word called, word called Yara. It's about reciprocity. How I treat other people is reflected back to me. Um, How I treat the environment is reflected back to me. It's it's quite a beautiful, uh, rich history of the Ghana people. And uh, so they really only have two numbers, one and two, because that's all about reciprocity. And I think that's the same with people. And so when you talk about the bigger picture, if you still keep students and that relationship stuff at the heart, that does flow on to parents. Parents want to know you. your number one priority is caring for their kids. The way you run the business. Um, and when I came to Emmanuel, certainly people come and see the lovely buildings and the, the nice environment, but literally they were borrowing money to pay teachers when I got here. And uh, clearly the future was looking pretty grim for a short while. But I think even at that point, rather than sit down and solve all of those financial problems, the most broken thing was some of the culture and that's part of the thing that we work on. And I think 
people talk about culture beats strategy any day, but I think it, culture is the absolute key and it comes back to relationships. Well, you can't implement your strategy unless your culture is going to work for you. Yeah, so I think, it, you know, in the early days, it was certainly a lot of small steps. Um, as you know, you've been around the school with me. It's important for me to know my, not only know my kids by name, but to know something about them. Um, that also flows then back to staff because then, you know, if you walk in staff and talk to kids by the name, there's a pressure on staff to actually do the same thing. But I think that's a really key bit If and and in some cases – People work on fixing the finances first, but if you've actually got no relation element, then there's nothing to build on. So, and keeping your uh, eye on the long game, I think sometimes uh, with the long game, yes, there's got to be quick fixes, but you have to be very clear and articulate where the school is going and what is important. I think the hardest thing I often tell new principals that I mentor, and I'll often get asked this, what's the hardest part of your job? And I tell them, it's all of the things I say no to. Some of them I'm really passionate about and some of them I believe very strongly need to happen, but the timing may not be right. Um, It's easy as a principal to say yes to lots of things. The hardest thing is what you say no to because you have to be really decisive. And one of the things uh, I got taught by uh, a wonderful head of education, Ken Boston, and Ken always taught me the worst decision is no decision because you even lose the people that support you. So that strong, decisive leadership for me is one of the key elements to what we do operationally. And how do you balance that decisiveness that you are expected to provide for the community, but also that relationality and that cultural aspect and the consultation? I know that one thing that is key to your leadership is student voice and agency and students as makers of change in the school. So I wonder if you can talk about why that's important to you and and how you leverage that in maybe the decision-making that you make. The absolute key, if you're looking, you know, we get carried away on, and don't get me wrong, there are some awesome need for wellbeing programs, but we come back to the key of it, which is students want to feel they belong. And if you feel part of something, you're contributing to it, you actually feel you do belong. The good bits and the bad bits, I think that's an important bit. And even the way our boarding students refer to themselves as the boarding family, it is a family environment. That's something they have created. That's something they contribute to. I'm involved in a major project here at the moment and one of my ideas was rejected by the student committee. And I thought that was a bit harsh, but at the end of the day, it was something I'm really passionate about, I want to do. But as one of the kids said, well, Mr. Richardson, we'll just follow your rules. There's yes, no, or come back with a better argument. And I said, well, can I come back with a better argument? And they said, yes. They said, it'll have to be pretty good because we're fairly firm on this one. But um, <laughs> I, And it was really hard. It was that harshness of, I felt like in the back of my mind, I just want to say, I'm going to do it. I know I can't. But having students get that sense of belonging is really important because then that flows on to families. And you need to build that strong community. In um, 2020, when COVID came along, and a parent said to me one day, and you might remember those early days of absolute uncertainty, and... Uh, one of the parents said, oh, look, Carl Stefanovic said today, this is what's happening. And I suddenly had that slap in the face of reality that a media personality was actually providing a direction to my parents and a sense of comfort. And from that point, which was very early on, every day I wrote a personal note to every parent. And what I said is, we don't know where this is going, but I can tell you this is what we will be doing for your students and your families And some of that was sharing the challenges that I had personally in my own family, as you might remember. Well, in fact, my wife was seeing far more of me than she'd ever seen because it was no night activities. But 
that really cemented a really strong sense of our parents now feeling part of that belonging and they would share it with next door neighbours. This is what our principal's saying. So I think it is, it is about making it personal. And uh, um, so I think in, in doing all of that decisiveness, you still have to keep that heart element and that sense of belonging. And how you build the sense of belonging is literally students feeling in the long term, I generally have a role in here. I can't just walk past something. I do need to go and talk about it or I can raise it or I can challenge it. And also that idea that if they do raise something, it will be listened to and taken seriously. I remember about four years ago, a young year eight girl came down with a senior student because she'd heard she could come and meet with the principal and she she had a real concern. And her question was, do you know how long the corridor is to get to the counsellor? Now, the pragmatist in me went, uh, yeah, I think it's about 5.03 metres. <laughs> but when I actually asked her what it was, is, and I explored a bit further, she said, look, you walk down there, I don't actually know what the counsellor looks like. Uh, I think I do. Is she going to ring my parents straight away? Can I come back for return visit? What approach does she use? And what if I need counselling or support on a weekend? So that young woman, who's now quite senior leader in the school, Um, sat down and worked with a group of students where they put all of their questions and now you can go on our internal intranet pretty much and actually look at all of those questions are answered for you before you get there. There's a little bit about the counsellor, a little bit about when we have to ring parents. They've completely put together a set of resources that students can use outside of school hours um, that some are school and some are not and she owns that. That has been one of her things. She's actually on our student wellbeing committee now but she genuinely owns something that's made a real difference for kids. And for her, the length of the corridor was really a metaphor for the barriers between where a student might start and where, how they might end up in that office, getting that help. Yeah, like not knowing, like she said, yes, it is only about five point me. I did go and measure it once actually. But <laughs> the reality is I don't know what I'm going to get when I get to the other end of it. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes in schools we have that mystery. It's a bit about trust us. Well, actually, in fairness, we have to go a bit beyond that. Mm. And it's interesting that you talk about that belonging and connection because there are plenty of ways that we might bolt on wellbeing programs or build very fancy buildings that are for the purpose of wellbeing. But you're talking about that sense of belonging as being really key to the well-being of everyone in your community, students, parents, staff. And you made a comment that I'm interested to understand a bit more about, which was belonging to the good bits and the bad bits. Can you tell me what you mean by that bit? You have to be upfront. Life's not fair. Things go wrong. You know, a little bit like when my art committee rejected the uh, beautiful sculpture that I wanted to install. The reality is I've got to accept that as well. And things will go wrong in life. And how do you get through that? I think I think one of the things we do too much in school is we focus on students' strengths and not their weaknesses. Now, I'm severely dyslexic. I quite often meet with some of the kids who've got dyslexia and I remember saying to one boy, stop using the excuse for being lazy. Let's work on the gifts you have of dyslexia. And uh, he's now quite doing quite well. Um, he's in year 12 and uh, will do very well, looking at a whole range of career options um, that are open to him that he never thought would ever actually happen. So I think in some ways... As I said, we focus too much on strengths and not enough on weaknesses. And then how do we enhance that? You know, one of the most wonderful experiences I had last year is a boy with autism who got up and spoke to 500 students about what it's like to be autistic. It was the most powerful speech I think I've heard for many years. And it was a boy with severe autism having that courage to explain why he churns through friends, why 
some of the challenges they see in him are very real to him and how they work. Being able to share those things are really important and kids to understand them, but the reality is things do happen in life. And kids also owning their own mistakes, it happens, you know. And You'd know too as a principal, we'd love to think we got everything right. The reality is we get a fair bit right, we hope, on a good day, but things aren't perfect. And sometimes, as I said, it's when I've got to say no to things that I'm passionate about or when things go wrong in students' lives and uh, how you build out of that. And I think that comes back to we forget what is the core of well-being and we tend to put in all these preventative programs rather than looking at creating a well-being culture. Mm. I think your words were we spend too much time focusing on strengths and not enough on weaknesses. Do you mean that we should focus on weaknesses as a strength or as, as is it a strengths-based approach that you are thinking about or are you thinking that we should look at weaknesses more? Oh, I think it is. I, I look, you know, a really good example, um, and I use dyslexia as an example, one of the things that a lot of dyslexic people have is very good memories. And uh, I had a young girl tour the other day and the parents sort of lowered their voice and said, oh, look, you know, uh, we're really keen for her to come here, but look, she does have quite severe dyslexia. And I said, oh, the young girl that was touring, oh, congratulations, so do I. (laughs) And then I talked about, so I bet you can see things in 3D that your friends can't. And I bet you have a better memory than most of your friends have. And I named about three or four things and she said, how do you know all that? And I said, because most people who have dyslexia haven't discovered they're actually very talented at some things that their friends aren't. We sometimes focus on it, it's just a weakness, but there are strengths. You know, I've got a young, young guy, Clay Stevens, who was born with no pectoral muscle on one side and his doctors said that uh, Clay will never do any sport that is upper body strength. Now, he's uh, now represented Australia, I think, coming up to the seventh time at Olympics, Commonwealth Games and World Titles without a pectoral muscle in the sport of gymnastics and an amazing young guy. But clearly, he's had to rethink and build a strength out of what was originally his weakness of having no pectoral muscle. So there's a an appreciation of and a celebration of idiosyncrasies, difference, individuality, and also I think that our job as educators is always to help young people to find their gifts and talents and what it is that's special about them and to enhance and celebrate and develop those. I use the term um, when I talk to new students, uh, my challenge, and I think this is our challenge for every educator. Uh, We worry so much about contents and all the other things, but my bit is I want to find that individual bit of sunshine for every student in my school. And that sunshine can be very unusual, very unique and very different. But once students find that thing that they are uniquely good at and they are uniquely passionate about, the world starts to fit together for them. Because despite everything else, you know, I'm not as good as this. You know, I was a student that failed year 12. Clearly, exams were not my great strength. And one of the things I think once students find that thing they are uniquely good at and passionate about and talent – a switch goes on in their life that goes, actually, I can't do this and I can't do this and I can't do this, but by hell, I'm so good at this. It's one of the things we're working a lot on, some entrepreneurship stuff, and we're discovering some talents and kids that no one's ever found and they weren't game enough to even tell anyone. And uh, one of the things we work very strongly in the school in doing that is that I almost don't want teachers using the word pedagogy in my school. Most teachers don't really get what pedagogy is about. We have a much more andragogical approach but I'm particularly interested in the whole horticultural approach where kids 
are able to learn and teach themselves stuff that no teacher ever gets harmed in the exercise. And I have some remarkably talented students who are doing a range of projects that nothing is assessed, um, nothing is marked, but they are passionate about and they are incredibly talented. And some are selling those skills uh, while they're still at school. But we focus so much on what a teacher has to directly offer. Some of the best stuff happening in my school, and I've got some amazing staff, some of the best stuff in my school, no teacher gets harmed in the exercise. And it's some of the most exciting stuff. And I'm looking at you, you're speaking in one of your school's podcast studios and I've walked around that your new Discovery Centre building and some of the sort of student co-design space there that's around entrepreneurship. I particularly remember the little phone booth, the phone box yes. for people to take business calls as you walked me around. I found that yes. curious. Brandon, and- Brandon Boyer was said, I, can't, I don't want to be doing deals where other students can listen to um, what I'm negotiating. So yes, that's Brandon's booth. He's now graduated <laughs> and still running his private business. But I think that that is uh, really important as well. So over 50 students were directly involved in the design of the building. What tends to often happen in schools is we consult with students and we call that student voice. My view is, in fact, in this project, teachers were consulted afterwards, but not a lot because teachers just wanted some nice large rooms uh, that look fresh. Um, what the students have done, no teacher would ever design a building like this ever. The kids wanted a biophilic design. I'll be honest, at the time I do a lot of work with school building designs. I didn't even understand what biophilia was, which is pretty much you push the building out into nature and you bring nature into the building. And uh, so in that case, there's uh, about 3,000 plants outside. 75% of this building is landscape. Now, normally in a school, we put a building in and then quickly run a bit of landscaping around it to look pretty. So that was a really important thing for students. They wanted to go far beyond the environmental stuff. One of the girls presented me with a strategy in America used corporately called the well measure, which means not only are you measuring the environmental aspect of the building, things like fresh air and uh, the greenery, but that you're also measuring the wellness of the building, how it builds community. Um, So we're using some of that in our work here. But that that concept came from students. And uh, the first question I did back when I built one of our buildings that won a lot of awards a few years ago, I said to the kids, I want you to photograph where you like learning. I had about 40 students involved in that project. 38 photographs came back. Three were in a school. And I was a bit shattered by that. I, you know, As principals, we all do have an ego. And uh, I thought we were doing a bit better than that. So then the next question was, I want you to go out and photograph where you'd love to learn. And I know you, you've been over in Perth. So one of the photos came back. I'd worked in Perth as well. And it was the high security area in one of the, I better not mention the bank, in one of the banks. And uh, I said, oh, that looks like the Perth skyline. She said, oh, yes, it's their new high security officers. Now, her auntie had taken her in on the weekend. I wasn't even sure I was allowed to be looking at the photos. I had the corporate offices in Microsoft within a couple of weeks of it being opened. The kids had been able to get into New South Wales, into the offices and bring me photographs of that. So we actually had all this amazing research that was put together by students. And of course, they knew they had to go to the nth degree. Um, it wasn't just a matter of finding a nice picture. So out of that, um, it's interesting, our architect and our landscape designer actually used some of the resources because the students had more time to actually do all that research. I love a group of kids went and spent half a day in the Qantas Club lounge, um, not so much for the free food and drinks, but actually just a why do you sit at a high table? Why do you sit down on a lounge chair? Why do you sit over here in a booth? You know, just interviewing people, why they chose different areas to work. Um, and that had some really fascinating stuff. So I think because they did that because they knew they could actually have input what was happening and they could own it. 
you've done a lot of work in this space of school facilities, learning facilities and so on and with students and with committees and with architects and builders and so on. What are those things that you have found that we should be considering when we're thinking about school facility learning space design? So I think the first thing is you can build a building that creates belonging. So even in large schools, how you design something that gives you a great sense of community. The second one, and and one of the things I'm working on at the moment is, uh, if we're serious as educators, the best learning for some subjects is not on our school sites. And in a few years' time, we will be offering subjects, and there's already schools in Australia doing this, that where my students can study and do units of subjects or micro-credentialing anywhere around the world. Of course, I, I also run a business. So how do I do that when one student's studying three of their subjects through an external three or four? I've got one at the moment doing four subjects externally. How do I then run a school where a majority of my students won't physically be doing a large part of their learning on this site? And then how do you design buildings that take that into account for when they're here? So it's no longer about just what classrooms do we build, but it's what sort of spaces. And I'm a really big believer that every space in this school has to be a learning space, whether it's a rock out in the yard or a seat, we have to create a much broader, more flexible environment. I think too often we're still building classrooms. I looked at a school yesterday that's a new school and what I looked at is some really lovely classrooms. There was very little focus on the rest of it. And in the next few years, that's going to change substantially. And most of us haven't got our head around that. So there's things like the sort of flexible learning environments, flexible seating arrangements, where students might want to learn, love to learn, be able to learn in a school. And you've also, I think, been rethinking pathways, obviously, and what schools offer in terms of on-site, off-site, different options for students. And also maybe this, even not the time of the school day exactly, but I know you showed me a facility that you have that's open early and late. And that idea that the school becomes like a campus that's not just an eight till four kind of a place. It was one of the things in 2014 when students were working on um, a new senior school building and they, there were several comments. We don't want teachers' desks. Teachers is tied behind them. Fairly accurate. Why do you only open a school at about 20 past eight and shut it at four o'clock and it now opens at 7.30 when the barista starts and shuts at seven at night, although kids can study later because that's when boarders are there as well. And uh, both of my boys, for example, when they came through, did all of their out-of-school hours study all in that building, even though we live nearby. Why do we have to have a Mr Smith and the Mrs Wilson's room? And, in fact, that was one of their things. And uh, because it's a senior school building, pardon the vernacular, but, you know, we don't want crap stuck up on walls. Teachers tell it's good for you, but seriously, the sicky tape gets yellow after 18 months and it falls down. That was fairly accurate. So that was a really important um, aspect of how you design the building, and a lot of work was put into having that that flexibility. I have tutors now, one tutor every night, so there's a math specialist on Monday nights, um, a humanities specialist on uh, Wednesday nights, and then there's what's called SOS study, which is student organised. So students who want to do medicine, they have their own group. I think that meets on Thursday nights as well. So what we tried to do, that group of students said, look, we want our school to be more like their life, which I found a really interesting comment because I'd realised actually sometimes school is not like your life. My favourite was teachers know me or they act as if they do. Now, I love the generosity of students. You don't need to know me. You don't need to know my name, but just act that you do know me. I want teachers to understand my behaviours and my learning and, re- and once again, respond as, as if they know about me. 
and then personalise my environment. Now, I think we can do that a lot more in the way we use technology, but we too often design buildings around learning and not around students and their needs. And this is all coming back, I think, to that thread that you've been talking about throughout, which is belonging, heart, connection, community, and the student at the centre of their experience of school in collaboration with the school. Absolutely. I've got a group of girls uh, who are running a Padlet on redesigning girls' toilets. How do you add girls' toilets? And a, a good friend of mine, Stephen Heppel, when he was working with some of our students, said, how have you designed toilets as a learning space? Now, Stephen can be a bit radical. I love his thinking. It's challenging. And I must admit, designing a toilet as a learning space was not something ever on my horizon. And he showed some examples of what he's been doing in Spain and the UK. And in fact, that's now some of what our middle school doing students are doing is how do they change the nature of girls' toilets and how do they turn it into a beautiful space um, and something that is an interesting space as well. And they presented the first half. They're running a Padlet with all of the students across the middle school having input and they shared some of that with me the other day. Some of it was amazing. I think, why haven't we thought about this years ago? But these are year seven, eight students. It is a personal environment for them. It is important to them. And uh, the way we used to design toilets for students are no longer acceptable. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it sounds like there's the buildings aspect, there's the teaching learning aspect, there's other things that you've done. There must be a lot of times in which you have implemented some kind of a change. So you've thought, here's something that we want to look at, prototype, design, bring in, explore. What have you learned over your time about implementing change in schools? Like what would your advice be to other school leaders around, you know, here's what I might suggest you do or here's what I might suggest you don't do? So I'm mentoring a couple of new principals at the moment and one of them was uh, the first thing I did is say, in your first year do nothing but sing and dance and make out you know what you're doing. Because the reality is some principals I know want to come in and we'll do this and we'll do this and the reality is you generally don't know your community. So I have this let's be generous and take a longer-term approach. I always say that too. It is a longer game. Work out what you want to achieve. Uh, Interesting, when I uh, came to Emmanuel 20 years ago, I was coming for five years. As I said, they were not doing very well financially and, uh, and academically. And so I said in five years' time, I'm going to put this into place. Now, um, 20 years later, I often talk to the students. They'll often ask me in some of our open forums, Mr. Richard, what were the things that your goal was when you came here? I said, well, I had 10 and I've got one that I've never been able to achieve and I won't leave here till I do. Um, and we're just finishing that 10th one. Um, I actually told some of the student leaders the other day, I said, I can now tell you what it is. Um, but some of those things, that particular one has taken me 20 years to do. So that probably wasn't in my game plan at the time, but I had to realise my school wasn't ready for it. Um, my community wasn't ready for it. So, And sometimes it's not the big things, it's little things. But I think certainly keeping your eye on what is what you want that legacy to be in your students one of the things we do here is uh, I met with three ex-students yesterday. We talked to students about a lifetime guarantee. So uh, two, uh, one was career advice on changing a job. He's quite senior. Another was a young student who is just graduating uni, going into teaching, and she wanted to how to improve her positioning. Um, and another one was uh, a young Aboriginal ex-Aboriginal student who uh, has just been on Q&A, so the first education Q&A, and I was just talking to her about the next couple of steps. Um, and this is about political positioning, which is sometimes we never advise students on. So 
I think that's really important that I want kids to feel like they can walk back in here at any time and get support. It doesn't stop when you walk out the door. Sometimes that's serendipitous in some schools, but I think you need to be far more purposeful about that. I love that idea of a lifetime guarantee. When you come to making those changes, they are big decisions in your life. And uh, sometimes you want people you trust and the people you quite often trust the most around that stuff are the people who are your teachers. Uh, Particularly if you build that sense of belonging, that sense of trust, we spend so much doing that. Um, We shouldn't make sure that it stops when you walk out the door at the end of the year because, you know, we've made a big commitment personally, teachers do. And uh, I think the one thing too is that uh, I think we missed a lot of opportunity um, the way teacher practicums have done because actually for teachers, sometimes very experienced, the chance to almost pass on their trade and advice to young people We've lost that a little bit and I think I'm a big believer in the adage when you teach, you learn and when you pass that on and even yesterday um, giving advice to one of the um, my ex-students who about who's graduated as, graduating as a teacher, it caused me to actually reflect a bit deeply on the nature of teaching and the nature in what I was trying to advise her on. So, you know... Even with my experience, you learn something every day. And I think that's something we've lost a little bit, that almost passing on the skill that sometimes as teachers we forget that we actually know because it's so intrinsic in what we do. There's a few important things that you said there around that you have to keep the legacy of your students. So it's not your legacy as a leader, it's the legacy of what your students leave with and that idea that your old collegians are an ongoing and eternal part of your community. I worked at one school in Melbourne and part of the school hymn, I remember the line was, you're part of the school for the rest of your life, <laughs> which was an interesting thing to sing. But it did have that sense of, you know, you're here, but your belonging and your connection to this place exists beyond your school years. Yeah, I think that's because the, the other thing you get when you make that really genuine, that it's not almost, it's a beyond the school tie thing. Um, we have a careers night. Over 80% of the people that turn up are past students because they know that that was done for them and it's my chance to contribute back. Um, and they do that almost as, as an honour. I think, um, you know, because sometimes we, we're always looking for new knowledge. Um, I work a lot um, we're in a number of Aboriginal programs. I'm on the board of Jindu, which is one of the largest youth development programs for Aboriginal kids. And I work a lot with uh, a lot of the elders within the community. And I'm really privileged to be able to do that. And one of the things I always discover is that Sometimes I come to education conferences to learn something new and I've been discovering from elders actually they had that in place 60,000 years ago. I talked about the concept of Yarra but when you start to look back what Aboriginal people knew and how they worked and uh, it, for example with Anagu people how Jukaba works, that's a living ongoing element and we suddenly go, wow, how come we didn't learn that? Um, you know, when some uh, people go through law that they are taught how to dance that particular law, how to draw it, how to sing it. And, you know, how did they know about multimodal learning 60,000 years ago? And sometimes we're out trying to discover the new ways of education and we forget that, you know, Aboriginal and Indigenous people in Australia actually were practising some of those things years before and sometimes ancient knowledge is probably richer than our current stuff. Mm, Absolutely. And the other thing that's resonating with what you said earlier was 
that in a school when you're thinking about change, context is queen, that idea about having a barometer for the cultural readiness of your community. I'd be interested at some point, Kevin, to see your 10 things that you thought you were going to achieve in your five-year contract, (laughs) uh, number 10 being done in after 20 years. Uh, But that idea that it's about getting to know your place, what is this place, what does it need now, who are the people, what's it ready for, Um, and being willing, I think, to be agile and flexible about what then happens based on what you're learning and what your insights are. Yeah, I think coming back, you know, one of the things I talked about before, the heart of education is the education of the heart. The element that sits below that, and I think this is where it becomes more of a reality, I want our kids to feel I am capable, I am in control, I matter to others, and I'm worthy. Now, when I first did that, I always had particular students in mind, and what I then discovered is that actually particularly if you've got adolescent kids in, in taking any school in Australia, you're a year nine student, they don't always feel like they're capable because I'm not good at this or I can't do this. They don't feel like they necessarily have control. A lot of students around the world being feel they don't matter to others. And in some cases that comes back to I'm not worthy. You know, I'm not. So I think those four things, I'm capable, I'm in control, I matter to others and I'm worthy, they form that framework of how you build that education of the heart because that comes down to individual things and and you might work out from that how that sense of belonging then is a really important part of uh, those four elements. And one of the things you're touching on is that vulnerability of students and how they come to school and what school needs to support them through. Principalship has been called the best job with the worst of days and the Australian Principal Wellbeing Survey doesn't have great data in terms of the wellbeing of principals but I'm wondering where do you find your sunshine in the work? It sounds to me like it's with the students in the in the various ways in which you engage with them but where's the joy and the sunshine for you in the work that you do? Uh, my wife always knows when I've had a really bad day at school because I go and have dinner with the boarders. One of the nice, you know, we're lucky we have 170 boarders and when you sit down at dinner with the boarders Generally, they actually even forget that you hold any role in the school. And every now and then I say, um, as I did not long ago to a group of girls, girls, I might just shift to another table for a while because they'd forgotten they were having a discussion that probably a principal didn't need to know about. Mm -hmm. But it is that earthiness, I think, from students. And uh, and to be quite honest, if I uh, have a cancelled appointment, what I usually do is my EA knows, I'll just go for a wander and sit in classrooms for a while. And that took a while for my teachers to get used to that. And then Mm -hmm. I heard a new teacher not long ago, uh, an older teacher say to one of the new teachers, it's okay, he's not here to look at you, he's here to talk to kids. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a really important bit. That's probably the joy. My inspiration is when I do have students come back, you know, the young woman I met with yesterday who's now graduating as a teacher, um, the joy and inspiration comes from, in a sense, the legacy we as a school and and as an individual you leave in students because There is no better joy in that, that you've made a difference. Even if it's to one person's life, I reckon I could dine out for the rest of my life on the joy I've perhaps given to one student. So that's, I think, for principals, sometimes we forget to look at the individual differences. We try to look too much at, you know, did we get a new building built or what's the budget look like? But in fact, really what we're here is for those individuals and uh, you wouldn't be a principal in Australia who couldn't put their hand on the heart and say, actually, I helped change that kid's life. I reckon there's no better inspiration at all in that. I was talking to a student recently who's thinking about doing teaching. It's what they think they really want to do, but they feel like maybe there's an expectation that they do something else in another field. And I said, well, the one thing that I've never had to think about is what's the point of my job? Every time I've gotten out of bed in the morning, I've thought there's a, you know, there's a purpose to this. 
I worked with someone at a previous school who said he gets out of bed in the morning every day and thinks, let's go change some lives, which is idealistic. But actually, that is what the work of education and teaching and schooling is. We are actually really directly influencing the lives of young people. And it's, it's really deeply satisfying. Yeah, people often ask me, uh, why have I stayed as a principal for 20 years? Um, it was almost a sanity check, I think. But, you know, it's interesting. I worked in, I started as a teacher, but most of my life has worked in corporate education or in corporate companies. And while I've been really privileged to do that and chance to work all around the world, I chose to come back as a principal. Um, And uh, as I said, I was planning to stay for five years, but I stayed for 20 because the joy that you get through the job. Now, by the way, have there been some terrible moments? Absolutely. Deaths of students or just even students perhaps not being able to reach their fullest potential. But the joy you get is unlike any other job. And uh, I think it's one of the things that I hear, you know, people complain about education stuff, but the reality is there is no more joyful job because you are genuinely making a difference to so many individuals. You don't get to do that anywhere else. You might make them a bit healthy. You might fix interim stuff, but we get to actually set things for the rest of their lives. And that's a joy you can't match in any other career. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I'll move us now on that very high note to what I like to call the enlightening round, our final five questions for today. And one of those is, what is something unexpected, Kevin, that people might not know about you? Probably a lot don't know that I worked mainly in a corporate role. So I had a chance to work with Apple in the US and Microsoft. Um, Did work with Lego on the theme park in Windsor. Um, I'm a lifesaver. A lot of my life-saving patrol are actually boarders, so they call themselves the Border Patrol. Um, but I get a joy out of doing that. And uh, people say, how do you fit that into your busy life? And I go, every few weeks I'm forced to go to the beach for the day. I don't get a choice. Um, so I, I enjoy that side. And uh, I think more and more know, but I'm very committed to reconciliation and my work with Aboriginal communities is a really important thing for me. That's probably what I call my real joy as well on top of mm-hmm. it. And uh and the chance to learn from Aboriginal elders and that is so rich. There is just knowledge there that we only just tap on sometimes. And uh, that's been a real privilege for me to be able to work in with that community. And how about something that's currently on your desk? Well, I um, met yesterday with some students who came in the holidays, so we're actually redesigning. So we've still got some garden design work to do. And uh, um, so not the normal thing, and I did laugh because uh, – at the end, I came in and had to wash the mud off my hands and one of the students said, I don't think there'd be many principals coming in who are in their suit who are washing mud off their hands. I did laugh. I said, well, I do get to have joy in the thing. But uh, So we're redesigning garden. I'm actually looking at our master planning and I, I talked before about master planning that takes into account that many of the students who will be enrolled in our community may not be studying within our community. That has a whole range of business challenges to mm-hmm. it, but also for facility challenges so that's one and I'm I'm writing and it's a really strong commitment for me to actually run a purposeful leadership development program we actually do run one here but I want to take it to another level and uh, uh, out of that I'm working with the Jindu Foundation to actually write a leadership program for Aboriginal students so uh, I did some work on that yesterday that's I'm really excited about that I don't think anyone's really sat down and done a rich leadership program for students and having read the literature around the world most of it's pretty tokenistic so uh, that's something that I'm getting a lot of joy out at the moment and challenges as well. Fantastic. How about someone that inspires you in your work? Look I think 
um, daily it's students. Um, when you hear students who overcome challenges or the things that they do on a daily basis, you get pretty humbled by that. The work of other leaders, uh, you probably know I'm reasonably competitive. Every Sunday night I look at 10 school websites in the world and my staff hate the fact on Mondays they usually get a little can you discuss because I found a good idea. But I am really humbled because I often tell new principals, I've been doing this for a while and every day I operate on the outer edge of my competence. And so when I see the work of other principals and leaders, school leaders, you just go, I wished I could be like that or I wished I, you know, some who are beautifully articulate or some who just are amazing leaders. So I'm inspired because I always feel like I'm playing catch up and that inspires me. You know, there's, uh, I was only last Sunday night doing the same and there were two two principals who were doing some really amazing stuff in their schools. So I just go, God, you know, when do you get to feel good enough about this job? But it is inspiring because you go, a couple of those ideas, because let's face it, we mostly steal our ideas from good practitioners. And there's a couple of ideas that really changed my thinking on some stuff. So uh, I think it's probably other school leaders. And, and because I tend to look quite deep into their work, most of them would have no idea. Some do know I'm competitive and do that all the time, but that's important for me. The work of schools is never done. No. I don't think no. there's ever a time that you say, oh, and we're done. It's it's yes. never finished. And interesting that, you know, each of us can be, I suppose, our best and authentic and most committed and hardworking and ethical selves, but that there will always be people that are better at some things than we are. So it's about, I suppose, serving our communities as best we can, but also looking to others to see what ideas they might have Mm. that would help us in the work that we do. Well, there's nothing like when you asked me to be on this podcast, and even though I've listened to some of your podcasts, and thank you, been a great resource, then I looked at the list of people you're interviewing. And I nearly wanted to make the phone call, Deb, there must be someone else because it was a bit intimidating when I looked at the list of people that you've uh, um, interviewed. There'll be so much in this conversation for others as well in terms of things to spark people's thinking. What is one thing that you've got coming up that you're particularly excited about? Probably two things. One, we invite every old scholar back who has left 60 years or more ago and we hold an assembly and my senior students host them for a lunch. So you can imagine now you're talking to people at the young youngies this year will be about 80 and there'll be a 99-year-old and a 100-year-old. One of the things I do is I say to the students, all of the people on this stage wore the same logo on their pocket that you do. And in 60 years' time, which freaks the year 12s out, someone is going to write to you and say, we're inviting you back to this assembly. And that important sense of belonging, the same thing, is that those people on the stage were part of what we had and, and the sharing of lunch with students and people who are you know 80 to 100 years of age is a really important part the other bit is uh, I talked before um, we're about to launch uh, Ghana Wadley a Ghana building which is dedicated to uh, a local elder who's worked very closely with our school and we've got our Aboriginal students involved in the design of that and that's going to be really exciting it's going to be something quite unique um, and hopefully in the next couple of months uh, we'll be able to launch that. So that's pretty exciting for me. That all does sound very exciting. And finally, Kevin, if you were to distill your thinking about education down to its essence, what is one thought that you would leave listeners with? I think it's about making it personal, and you may have picked up through this that my commitment is very personal with students and with teachers because I think that's also where the joy comes. It's sometimes, it's like anything in life. You know, I was once told, don't get too personal because you'll, you'll just get hurt. And the reality is, yep, it is, because suddenly, you know, 
the wheels fall off at different times. And if you do make it personal, and I have one of my best advisor keeps telling me, I told you, don't make it personal. Um, but it does, you know, if a student, you know, some of the hardest things I've ever done, I had a lovely boy pop back then who I had to terminate his enrollment. Um, he's uh, now out in the workplace and we caught up. He just wanted to come in and say, and he said, look, I knew what I really did was wrong. And he said, but I thank you for treating me with dignity when you did it. And, and it was, we had a great, we had a coffee together and a chat and he, it was really nice. He could come back. Interestingly enough, um, he said he will be enrolling his students here, which I thought was pretty amazing given the circumstances. But I think when you make it personal, yes, you can get it hurt, but you also get the most joy out of it. And I think what you've just touched on there as well is the importance of respectful interactions, no matter how difficult perhaps those conversations might be. Well, sometimes educators are our own worst critic and we tend to criticise education. It's this and it's this in public, which really demeans our profession. And and sometimes it's funny, I saw something yesterday uh, that someone had written to me as an important, an important player in the education industry. I hate that term. I don't see myself working as an industry. Um, it is much more than that. Now, that's a personal thing as well. But uh, I think what we do, very few professions get a chance to do what we do because we get a longer term goal. My son's a paramedic. I'm sure he, and he does, he saves lives. But, you know, one of the things I, even he said the other day, I get the joy because sometimes you don't get the follow-up. Mm. I think we see the really genuine longitudinal change that very few professions ever get to see. You don't get that in any other profession. Excellent. Well, thank you, Kevin, for your thoughts and insights there and for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you, Deb, and I look forward to catching up again. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.